you got a Bible, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is where we're going to be this morning. And, um, you know, as we get started today, I want to take a minute and uh, I want to introduce you guys to a few of my friends. Okay, let me introduce you to some of my friends. <clears throat> so, this right here, this is Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. <clears throat> and uh, let me tell you a little bit about Jonathan. So, Jonathan, he, uh, he grew up in church. Uh, he was the kid that was kind of there every week. He went to the VBSs as a kid and was in Sunday school and youth group and all that jazz. Has two parents that love Jesus. But here's the thing about, about Jonathan. When he was 16, um, he went down like a rabbit hole on TikTok. And this rabbit hole was essentially all these people who were once Christians and had now deconstructed their faith. They were pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible and saying that we couldn't really trust and believe that Jesus was an actual person. And, and, and the problem with Jonathan is he didn't really know what to do with these questions. He, he, he didn't know who to ask and he didn't know what to Google. And so what happened was after this rabbit hole and after a lot of just time trying to figure some of this stuff out, Jonathan started not believing in God at all. And... Fast forward a year later, Jonathan went from the guy who was always at church to the guy who's at school trying to convince church people that what they believe is not true. That's Jonathan. And then uh, over here I have, um, I have Stephanie. And, uh, and Stephanie, um, she didn't grow up in a Christian home. Her parents are kind of agnostic, which means they don't really kind of believe in anything religiously. They don't like push religion down her throat, but they also are not like uber, like don't believe in God. They're kind of just whatever works for you. And um, the thing about Stephanie is that as she grew up through elementary school and in middle school, she just began to develop this insecurity with how she looked. She was not, in her mind, as skinny as other girls were, as pretty as they were, and she wasn't getting as attention from guys like other girls were. And so she didn't really feel like she could go to her parents because they didn't really have a great relationship, like in an emotional connection. And so she decided to kind of go online, went on some forums online, and she started to be encouraged by people that really didn't know her that the best way to deal with her stress was to harm herself. That's Stephanie. This is Hasim. Hasim is Muslim, and his family is from Pakistan. He uh, is an individual who, if you met him, he would probably be the nicest person you have ever met. He's kind, he's caring, he's compassionate, he's loving. And he lives in a country where, going to a public school, his religion makes him a little bit different. And he finds himself going to a public school with a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And he always wonders why it is that he's a kinder, nicer individual than they are. This right here is my friend Jessica. And uh, Jessica grew up in church and she went to student ministry events. Um, but when she was 12 years old, she was exposed to pornography. And as a girl, she felt like this was not something that she could talk about. Like it's a guy's problem and they talk about it in their small groups, but like we don't open up about that as girls. And so she kind of kept it contained. And after a few years of viewing pornography in secret, she began to develop an attraction, not just to guys, but to, to girls. And when she finally came out and was open about her sexuality, she was not met with love in the church. She was met with judgment. And this right here is Todd. And Todd is a tool. 
And I say that lovingly because Todd would tell you as well, he's a tool. Todd's the guy who's the life of the party. He, he's the one who everyone wants to be around. He goes to church. He's been in church. There's a Bible verse in his Instagram bio, but everybody knows he does not love Jesus in any capacity. What parties and so he does anything he can to get whatever girl that he can. And he'll talk to multiple girls at one time. He'll go to parties and he'll be the one that gets black before everybody else and has the funniest thing that people put on their snap stories. But here's what people don't know about Todd. Uh, Todd's dad has not been in the picture since he was three years old. So you'll notice something. And all their chairs are empty because for every single individual, there's a reason why they did not feel connected to the church. How can Bell Shoals students be a ministry where everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter their background or their home life, how could this be a place where everyone feels connected? see, last night we really were introspective, which means we looked at ourselves, we examined our hearts. We said, have we sat down in that seat? But this morning, I want to flip the question and not make it, have you sat down in that seat? But instead, are you living in a way that says that somebody else has a seat? And so to do that, I want to look at some traits that need to be present in this ministry so that this can be a space where no matter who you are, when you walk into Bell Shoal students, whether it's at this campus or Apollo Beach or anywhere in between, you feel connected immediately. And to do that, I want to look at a story in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells, which demonstrates the welcoming, connecting heart of the Father. And I want us to look at God as our example, and hopefully by looking at him from, as our example, we will see some things that need to be true about us in order for us to be a people and a place where people feel connected. Because the reality is I gave you five names and five stories, but there's a whole lot more names and a whole lot more stories of people who have never sat in that seat. And the gospel is a message that's offensive enough because it says that you're a sinner who's condemned to death and destruction because of your actions. That's offensive. Let's not offend people with anything else other than that. So how can we be a space in a ministry where people can feel connected? Well, I want us to work through this story in the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to see these traits, these things about the Father, because what we're going to see this morning is we're reading a story that's known as a parable. What's a parable? A parable is a fake story with a real meaning. It's something that symbolizes and gives kind of a message in the form of a story, because we are all storytelling people. We connect best with stories. And so I want to read this story to you, make a couple comments, and then we'll take a step back, pull some takeaways, and then we'll leave this morning. How can we be a ministry that connects people? How do we become a connected ministry? Well, we have to have some things true about us. But let's read, starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, it says this. He, as Jesus, also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. Now pause right there. In this time period, um, all of the wealth in a family was centralized in the father, the patriarch, the one who ran the family. And uh, there was a certain amount of um, 
finances and assets that would go to you when your father died. Key, when your father died. This younger son we see goes to his father and says, hey, I want the assets that are due to me right now. In other words, dad, I don't care if you're alive, I would rather have you dead because I want what you can give to me. We might scoff at that and be like, dude, what the heck, bro, that's so petty. Like, why would you do that? Um, but how many of us look at the giver of everything and say to him on a pretty consistent basis, when you're giving me things, we're good. When you're not giving me things, we're not good. Why is it that we question God when suffering or bad things enter into our life? Why is it that we give ourselves the license to live in sin when life isn't as we want it to be? It's because we're holding God to promises he never made to us. Give me everything. Verse 13. Takes it all. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Foolish living. He took the hard-earned money, the blessing that he got from his father, and he used it to his own advantage. It says that he was foolish with it. Another interpretation in the original Greek says he was stupid. It doesn't say that. That's just my interpretation. After he had spent everything, a severe famine or this period where there was no food struck the country, and then he had nothing. And so then he went to work for the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And it says that he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. This is what we would like to call rock bottom. He took everything the father had given him, all the blessings, all the good. He used it to his own advantage. He was dumb with it. He was stupid with it. He was foolish with it. And what happened? He squandered it all and then he was left with nothing. And the most appealing thing in front of his eyes was pig's food. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He's like, dude, the people who work for my dad, they eat better than this. I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him. And then he starts getting a speech. Y'all know this, like you ever like, you're supposed to be home at 11 and it's clearly like 11.45 and you had that ride that was supposed to get you home. You know what I'm talking about? And in the car, you're rehearsing. Okay, like what am I gonna say? I'm gonna get there. Be like, okay, listen, here's the deal. Like I tried to tell, but they wanted to go to McDonald's. And the McDonald's we went to, it was close. And they wanted to go to Burger King. I don't know why. Cause Burger King, I don't know. They were just crazy. And so like we went to Burger King. Burger King wasn't working. And you rehearsed the speech to your mom and dad. That's what's happening here. Why do you have to feel like you have to justify yourself when you're guilty of what you've done? So what does he say? Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. He's like, okay, I'm just gonna be like, listen, I've sinned before God in front of you. I'm, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just let me be a servant for you. That's all that I want. I don't have to be your son anymore. Like I will literally work for you. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. So he got up and he went to the father. And then I love this. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Pause right there. 
There's a lot of you in this space and you are not living for Jesus and you know that. And you think that if you make any step towards God, you're gonna be met with anger and frustration and condemnation. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because what the law could not do because it was entangled by sin, Jesus has done. Therefore, if you feel condemned, if you feel guilty over your sin, if you are in Christ, those feelings are not from God, they're from the enemy. Because the way that Jesus calls you deeper is not by reminding you of your sin that he's forgiven you of. It's by reminding you of the righteousness that he's already given to you in his son, Jesus. He has compassion for the son. And so it says that he ran and he threw his arms around the son's neck and he kisses him. And then the son gives him his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer to be called your son. And the father says, quick, quick, um, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. We see a son who had disqualified himself from having a seat at the father's table. And yet in a moment where he enters back into the father's presence, the father does a few things that demonstrate that this seat has always been available to him. So what did the father do? He did a couple things, and what I want us to do in these next few moments is I want us to lean into these things that the Father did to the Son. Because if we can do these things as a ministry, we will be a place where everyone will feel connected because everyone will feel like they have a seat at the table. So, first, if you want to be a ministry, if you want to be a space where people will feel connected, no matter what they've done, no matter what their background is, first, you have to be willing to place value on people that others have written off. You have to be willing to place value on people that others have written off. You see, the father comes, and the first thing he does is he gives the son a robe. Now, in this time period, um, a robe was more than likely the most expensive piece of um, attire of clothing that an individual would have in their wardrobe. And, and a robe was only to be worn on very, very special occasions at weddings and at very uh, significant religious ceremonies. And the father looks at his son who, by the way, where's he been? With the pigs. Homie didn't stop at a day's end on the way in and freshen himself up. He smells like bad. Kind of like some of you sixth grade boys this morning after last night. Like, it's rough, guys. I mean, he stinks. He's nasty. He's got mud. He's got poop. He's got all this stuff all over him. And the father does not even hesitate. Hey, get him a robe. Get the robe. Put it on him right now. What's he doing? He's showing his son value. Value and worth are probably one of the most confused 
attributes and traits in our society today. Because we determine the value and worth of somebody based upon what they can do for us or for society. For example, we pay people millions of dollars to throw a ball. We pay people who are educating the minds of the next generation, not a million dollars. Think about it in your own life. The people you surround yourself with are typically people who add something to you. They make you laugh. They make you feel like yourself. They, 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 you have a good time when you're with them. We do not very often put value on people who cannot do anything for us in return. You want to know why? Because we are all professionals at giving people labels. Like when you see people, what do you see? You look around a room like this. Like, are you seeing like, oh, that person... They're cool or they're not or they're weird or they're, they're normal or they're, they're an athlete or they're definitely not an athlete. Or like I follow them on social like they're definitely a Republican or they're a Democrat or they've got some money and they don't really have very much money or I know that what they do like they're straight and well they're not, they're gay or well, they're famous over here or you're just a little bit basic over there or that, hey, you're mature or they're, they're more petty. Like, guys, we live in a world where we have to label people because labeling people helps us to understand them. Here's the problem, though. <clears throat> there are only two categories that we can biblically put people in. Um, back when the uh, Titanic um, sank, uh, obviously, it was a period of time where there was no technology, like you didn't have internet and email, and you couldn't like put on social media, like, hey, here's people we're finding real time. So what happened was in Piccadilly Square in London, which is like their version of Times Square, it's the main area in downtown London, they put a big old massive chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, they wrote two categories, lost and found. And on the lost side, they wrote every person who was on the log on the Titanic. And as they would find people and they would get word that they were found, they would erase them off the lost side and they would put them on the found side. You want to know why? Because in that situation, it was life or death. And because it was life or death, the only categories that mattered were lost and found. Unfortunately, even though we know the gospel says we live in a life and death situation, many of us, we just don't actually believe that deep down. So what do we do? We categorize people differently. And then we wonder why it's so hard to live on mission. Then we wonder why it's so hard for our friends who don't know Jesus to connect with our ministry that knows Jesus. It's because we've spent too much of our time labeling people in categories that God never called us to label them as. There's two categories that these people in the world live in. People are either lost without Jesus or they've been found by Jesus. And people will not believe that Jesus is the most important thing for them if they don't see that he's the most important thing to us. And we demonstrate that he's the most important thing to us by putting value on people who others have written off. Do you do that? Do you show worth and value to people 
that others don't. That's what the Father did. Second thing we have to do if we want to be a ministry that connects people is we have to treat people like family even when they don't act like family. Treat people like family even when they don't act like family. We, uh, we see that, uh, that, that um, when, when the father comes to the son, he approaches him. And like we said, he gives him some things. And this, in this time period, um, there were always, uh, if you wanted to demonstrate your humility towards somebody, if you wanted to demonstrate your reverence and your respect for someone, you would always come to them barefoot. Like we see this in Exodus chapter three, when Moses is standing in front of the burning bush, what does he do? He takes off his sandals because he is on holy ground, the Lord says. So what does the father do to his son who approaches him without anything on his feet? He gives him sandals and he gives him a ring on his finger. Now, rings at this time period, they were not just uh, like jewelry that someone would wear. It wasn't just something that they would add to their outfit to make it pop. Like, like the, 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 the rings that people would wear, they were always rings that signified which family you were a part of. They were a family signet ring. So the father gives his son sandals and a ring. What's he saying? With the sandals, he's saying, you're welcome in my presence. With the ring, he's saying, you are my son. And and this is a picture of what God has done for us. You see, I think that for many of us, we assume that in order for someone to actually really connect with us as a Christian, they have to be just like us. So we have a hard time treating them like family when they don't act like family. But but understand this. Romans chapter 15 says that Jesus has welcomed us so that we could in turn welcome him, which is to say this. The gospel demonstrates an initiating type of love, which says that Jesus has demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. And it's in demonstrating his love for us that we have the ability to respond and love him in return. That's the pattern. It's not sit here and go, all right, come prove yourself. All right, change. All right, stop doing that. It's loving where you are. And it's from that love responding in a love that is reciprocated. I, see that, I think that for many of us, myself included, we, we find it really difficult to welcome people who are unlike us. Like it's so easy to be in a small group with people who live the similar kind of life that we live, play the same sports that we live, have the same drama with like boys or girls that we have. Like that's a lot easier to connect with. It's harder to connect with someone whose past is really messy. It's harder to connect with someone who their faith in God is not as airtight as yours is. It's, it's harder to connect with people who have different beliefs about stuff than you do. It's harder to connect with people who have different opinions about what's going on in this world than you do. Listen, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we don't call people to the same standard of truth that Jesus calls us to. 
I'm just saying let's have the same amount of grace that Jesus had with us because if we're honest, we don't feel that standard of truth as often as we think that we do. Over and over and over again, Jesus tells his disciples, often in the gospels, he says something along these lines where he goes, how long do I have to be with you before you're gonna understand this? Would we be a ministry here at Bell Shoals where people are welcomed and treated as family even if they're not acting like family? He puts value on those who have been written off. He, 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 he welcomes the son even when the son is not acting like family. And here's the last thing I think that we have to do if we're gonna be a ministry that connects people. We have to make sacrifices that will welcome people home. We have to make sacrifices that will welcome people home. In John chapter 13, Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And the word for love that Jesus used is a Greek word called agape. Agape is a type of love that demonstrates self-sacrifice and how it loves. You see, in this time period, people did not eat the way that we eat today. Like, it's normal for us to get up in the morning, get a biscuit from Chick-fil-A, and then go and get, like, some lunch, right? And, and then maybe get a little snack in the afternoon, and then eat some dinner, and then maybe have another snack when we get on Xbox with our boys, and, and then maybe one more snack before we go to bed. Like, we just eat nonstop, right? That's one of the privileges of living in the world that we live in today. That was not the case in this time period. You ate very sparingly. Let me tell you something. You didn't eat meat unless it was a very special occasion. And it says that they got the fattened calf. What's that mean? That's the A5 Wagyu steak. Like that's the cream of the crop. And the father said, yo, we want to cook that thing tonight. Put it on the big green egg. We're making steaks. We're partying. My son has come home. What's that going to do? It's going to cause the father to sacrifice a lot. And listen to me, guys. I think that for many of us, we assume that if we want to be a space and be a place where people can actually be connected, they have to submit. Submit to our way of life, submit to the calling that we have, submit to the gospel. And listen, do not mishear me. I'm not telling us we don't call people to repentance and faith in Jesus. I'm just telling you this, the gospel says, sacrifice precedes submission. Jesus died on a cross before you or I ever decided to respond in faith to him. Jesus died on a cross and his disciples were nowhere to be found. Jesus sacrificed himself on a cross and then gave all of us the freedom to make the decision of whether we would submit to him. You wanna know why he did that? Because in order to actually enter into a loving relationship, you have to experience love first. And that's what sacrifice demonstrates. Sacrifice demonstrates love. And love is the most powerful motivating factor that there is. So, what would God call you to sacrifice so that this could be a space where everyone feels connected? Would it be sacrificing your pride would it be sacrificing your opinions? Would it be sacrificing the way that you think this should be done? 
We sacrifice to welcome people home. We welcome people into the family even when they don't act like family. And we place value on those that others have written off. And maybe if we do that, this could be a space where these don't remain empty. You know, I'm a big history guy. And um, one of my uh, just most interesting periods of history that I uh, study is kind of that World War II era, and especially the Holocaust. And um, there is uh, this one particular story from the, from the Holocaust that I've always just been enamored by and fascinated by. And um, it's, this, um, it's a story about this church um, in Germany. And uh, this church, it was located right outside of a, uh, like a train station. I mean, literally like walking distance, kind of like right across the street was this train station. And, you know, it's the 1940s and late 30s. And so uh, this uh, church doesn't have like air conditioning and that kind of thing. And so what they would do is they would open up all their windows, open up all their doors, and that's how they would get airflow into the church. So people would come and worship and, and they would be singing their songs and hearing some kind of message preached and um, and as they do, uh, they would open these doors and let air flow in, and it would be this nice, comfortable environment. Well, um, as the Nazi occupation of Germany increased and as they began to persecute uh, Jewish people, uh, this train station became kind of a hub of taking Jewish families before they would send them off into concentration camps. And um, this, uh, this, this place that was once just a bustling train station people would go to and, and move all throughout Germany and the rest of Europe, um, it basically became one of the final spaces where families were together. Because they would get to this space and then they would be separated, mothers from daughters and sons and, and husbands from wives and grandparents from grandkids. They'd be separated and they'd be put on separate train cars to go to different concentration camps. And in those camps, many of us know the awful things that were done. So as people became aware of what was happening to them and their families, these Jewish people, obviously this was not a happy space. It was a place that had a lot of anguish and it had a lot of screams and it had a lot of crying and it had a lot of begging and it had a lot of pleading. Well, this church that existed, it existed and it's, again, doors are open, windows are open to let air in, but that noise began to distract them the wailing and the begging and the crying and the pleading, it distracted them from the important stuff that they were doing, their praying, their worshiping, their sermon preaching. So what did they do? They made the decision to close the windows, close the doors, so that they could focus on themselves and their relationship with God. And so what they effectively did was they distracted themselves from the hurt that was right outside their doors. And you know, I wonder how many of us, if we were honest, we would say that we have the temptation of being just like that. I got my relationship with God. I got my priorities. I got my theology I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to go deeper. I'm trying to do more. And we just distract ourselves from a world that is hurting. We go to school and we see the sin that's there and it doesn't break our hearts. 
It just annoys us. We come into events like this and the people who are up here at the front, like they're our boys, like they're the people, like they get it, they're up and they're raising their hands. But the people who are back there who are really uncomfortable because this is their first time, we look at them and go, how can they just not worship God? The call of the gospel is the call to make ourselves like Jesus by submitting ourselves to the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is a way that says anybody can come. But will we be a space where that is true? Will we be a ministry where people actually feel like they can be connected? Or will we be a ministry that's too focused on ourselves, too focused on our own priorities and our own opinions to open our eyes and open our doors and open our windows to a world that is broken and hurting? So Jesus, I just ask that in this moment, you would give us a space to pause. Could we ask the question, about ourselves, because the reality is we can start initiatives to connect people to Bell Shoals students and this amazing church. We can have programs that do that. But if we personally don't believe that anybody can be connected to you, God, we will never corporately be a ministry that connects you to a dying and lost world. So like the psalmist said, in this moment, we wanna search our heart and examine it. God, we want to see if there is any wicked way within us. Jesus, where there is judgment and where there is arrogance and where there is pride, would you draw us to repentance right now? where we have become too fixated on ourselves and what we want, would your kindness in this moment show us that we can turn away from that sin and towards you? Jesus, you are faithful to work in the midst of us, even when we are broken and even when we are standing in the way. And your gospel is a message, God, that calls us out of sin and into life with you. And Lord, we just want to be messengers and vessels that carry that good news. Jesus, don't let our actions get in the way of that good news. Don't let our opinions and priorities get in the way of that good news. Lord, would we be able to be a ministry? Would it not be able to be said about Belshul students? That's not a place where I can belong. Belshul students be a place where everyone can feel connected to God and connected to one another because the gospel is at the forefront of our minds, Jesus. We love you. And now we enter into this time of worship with you where we reflect on who you are. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.